Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Bible. Turn with me to Luke 24. We've been exploring these past few months the Gospel of Luke and the weeks leading up to Easter. And Jesus has been taking us on a journey, a wilderness journey, toward the city of Jerusalem. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, but a whole world of activity has happened between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday this morning. In Luke's Gospel, five long chapters worth of activity. Jesus cleanses the temple. He serves the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He prays in agony on the Mount of Olives. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. He's denied by Peter. He's mocked by soldiers. He stands before the council. He stands before Pontius Pilate. He stands before Herod. He is crucified. And Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea carried him to a tomb. Luke says, with, with great care and dignity, really, Joseph wrapped him in linen and laid him in not just any tomb, but an unused tomb, which is a detail that reminds us of his entrance into Jerusalem last week when he rode on an unridden colt of a donkey. But Luke also tells us that Joseph was not alone at this burial service. A group of female disciples from Galilee were at his private burial service, which means that the wilderness journey of Jesus that we all have been on, if your mental image is Jesus and a bunch of guys, we need to reconsider. Scandalously, for that culture, Jesus called all image bearers into full discipleship. Where were the apostles? They were in hiding. And as they hide, these female disciples are preparing spices and ointments for the tomb, and on Saturday they rest. In grief. Which takes us to our passage this morning. I'll read and I'll invite you to listen along. This is God's word. This is Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But, and I listen, the whole gospel hangs on that one word. But. Grief and silence from God on Saturday. But, on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek a living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. They knew that. They saw that. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna... And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, as Peter does, and ran to the tomb. 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. So Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would we not just learn new information this morning, but would we encounter you, Jesus, so that our hearts would be singing. By the time this is done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. There is one. Well, sitting on top of my piano is a small fishbowl. If you've been in my house, in my living room, you know this. And swimming inside of this fishbowl is Galaxy. That's the name of our latest beta fish. Galaxy. And I say latest beta fish because it's not our first beta fish. Whenever we buy a beta, we don't expect to have it very long. Betas are notorious for their short lifespan. And so beta fish owners are wise to set their expectations accordingly. Uh, sadly, the same is true for dogs. It's apparently the most, I mean, I would say it's not apparently, it's probably the most tragic part of taking on a dog. You know you will only have this beloved companion for a decade or more. In fact, it's part of the deal. So when we got Dewey, we talked about this openly at the front end. We, Josie and I actually talked about how, each of our, how old each of our kids would be when their hearts are broken. In both of these cases, we are accepting the reality of death and then living within its parameters. It's like when we tell our kids, if you can't get out of it, get into it. And that's what we've all done with the facts of death. And so we just do the best we can to live in light of the facts. I think most of us are able to do this with our pets. But this is much harder when we consider our family and our friends. And yes, even ourselves. I see two basic approaches to the reality of death in our lives. And the first is escape. Some of us try to escape this reality. So the psychologist Arnold Wiseman at the University of Kent, England, not Ohio, unfortunately, has spent a lot of time researching this, and he calls this the escape treadmill. It's a treadmill because we keep running away from the reality of death with what? With our work, with our next vacation, the next big game. But after all the effort, we end up in the same exact place we started. If you've ever been on a treadmill, you know. Not further away from there at all. But we try. Some of us go the opposite route and we embrace it. We embrace that by maximizing pleasure. We eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow we die. Some of us defy death by taking risks. All you have to do is watch Free Solo on Netflix to see what that is all about. Others of us embrace the reality of death by doing what we can to leave a legacy in our life. Escape or embrace. But here it's the truth. I think probably most of us even here this morning. Most of us live between these extremes, don't we? We don't philosophically embrace death. But neither do we outright deny it. What do we do? I think we just do the best we can in life. We try and enjoy life as it comes. We try not to think too hard about it. But notice, in all of these cases, no matter where you are on the spectrum, 
death gets the final say. It frames all that we do. It's like the boundary lines on a soccer field. Everything we do in this field called life is limited and framed by death. I call this our death default. Our death default. Now listen, it was never supposed to be this way. In the earliest chapters of the Bible, we learn that death is an intruder. A consequence of what the first chapters of Genesis describe as sin. So that one of the saddest chapters in the Bible is actually Genesis 5. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year, you'll remember this chapter as a giant genealogy with impossible to pronounce names. Verse 5 goes like this. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Then verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And then verse 11. Thus all the days of Enosh was 905 years and he died. And the list goes on and on. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. It is a litany, a sad litany of death. Modern readers, we read this and we're like, we can't get over the, the, the lifespan. We're like, 905 years. But the real shock, the real scandal of Genesis chapter 5 is not the length of their life, but that their life ends in death. Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. This death default, we made it back. So when I see Mary Magdalene, when I see Joanna, when I see Mary, mother of James, and I see the other women preparing spices for Jesus and for his tomb to cover the stench, I see two things. I see an act of profound beauty. These women are are grief-stricken by the death of Jesus, and they're doing the best they can in light of it. But I also see our, de- our death default in action. If the apostles are running away, I see these female disciples also with a death default. So at the tomb, an angel has to preach the first Easter sermon. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Verse 5. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he said. Even though Jesus told them numerous times that he will not stay dead, they still defaulted to death. That's how ingrained it is. Death is their default. It's ours too. And this morning we need to hear this angel's sermon. Why are you looking among the dead? Remember he is risen. So let me just ask you right now. When are we caught looking among the dead? Maybe it's whenever we walk through life alone with our thoughts and just our thoughts. Whenever we ignore or perhaps downplay our grief because we think our grief will sink us forever. Maybe it's when we assume injustice will have the final word. We just assume it. Perhaps when we say death is just the way it is. The order. This is our death default in action. It's our cynicism, it's our numbness, it's our sarcasm. It's what we preach to ourselves day in and day out. It's so common, we don't even notice it. But the angel preaches a different word. He preaches a different sermon. 
He points to the risen Jesus. He wants to change our default. He tells us to switch defaults. Embrace instead a resurrection default. What would it be like to live in a resurrection default? Where we do not allow death to be the end-all, be-all parameters of everything we do, everything we think. Well, that's the sermon. That's the angel. What are you doing? Looking for the risen one, the living one amongst the dead. Do you remember what he said? He is risen. Not just in your hearts, not just in your minds. He's no longer dead. Really. Look. Look. This angel's sermon is a, is a master class in preaching. Just look at the empty tomb. And remember what he promised. He does what he says. I think this resurrection default would do three things in our life. I think it would break conventions. So the first thing I think we see in this text is a ton of surprise, a ton of wonder, a ton of perplexing postures here. Because Jesus is in his resurrection breaking everything we know about how the world works. The women arrive with their burial spices to cover the stench of decay. But when they arrive, there is no stink because there's no body. It's an understatement to say conventional wisdom says that the dead stay dead. This left them perplexed because, as the angel says, Jesus is raised. The resurrection breaks convention. And as an aside, the conventional wisdom also said in those days that women were unreliable witnesses. But Jesus clearly entrusts his resurrection message to his female disciples who were with him all along and then who boldly carry the news of his resurrection, again breaking convention, to cowering apostles. The apostles didn't believe them. And Peter needs to see for himself, and as one scholar put it, the first Christian skeptics in history are the apostles themselves. Again, why? The resurrection breaks convention. It is radical. The resurrection default, then, means our approach to life breaks convention. We don't allow death to have the final say. We don't, in the words of Paul, allow our minds to be conformed to the ways of this world. Which is to say, we don't share its death default in Christ. It breaks convention. Number two, I think it births wonder. The resurrection, if you read about it in the gospel narratives, you'll notice one thread throughout them all. There's a lot of running going on. It's amazing. It creates all kinds of running and all kinds of just sort of bewilderment. Nothing is cool. Nothing is calm. So verse 8 tells us they remembered his words. Can you just imagine that moment? Try in your mind's eye to go there. When they remembered his words and they connected what he promised about his resurrection to the empty tomb itself. And when they do, they run. Because what else can you do in that moment? And they run. 
and return to proclaim his resurrection to the eleven with boldness. And they don't care about the cultural rules. They're perplexed and in wonder. And then of the eleven, ten did not believe them. One was sort of half and half. He was piqued. So he ran to the tomb. He stooped. He looked in. And when he didn't see the body, he went home, the text says, marveling. Some translations say wandering. Not wandering. Wandering. Resurrection creates wonder wherever it lands. Many philosophers describe our cultural moment as one of disenchantment. There's nothing except what we see. And what we see is decaying and dying. We live like this. But the resurrection births wonder. We start to see ourselves. We start to see others. We start to see even this creation, this world, differently in light of Jesus and his resurrection. We see ourselves differently. First of all, we see ourselves as new creations in Christ. In Christ, we can practice resurrection, as Wendell Berry puts it. We're given by the Holy Spirit previews of our resurrection self in the resurrection. As we, as we lay hold of Jesus by faith, the scriptures say that we are now alive. And we too share in his resurrection. And we are given a preview by the Holy Spirit of that resurrection future. Like a time machine, the future resurrection me, the resurrection Joe, flows into the present. In some strange, hard to understand way. But that is what it is to grow in Christ. So we are not defined by our bad or our good decisions. We're not what our verbal abusers tell us we are. We are in Christ. We're new creation. That's wondrous. We view others as God does. The resurrection means we view the folks sitting next to each other. As we look at each other. We look at each other in Christ. We look at them as one day totally renewed, totally restored, which creates wonder. We should look with wonder on each other. We meet on the first day of the week because we are in the resurrection of Jesus. We're quick to forgive. We're eager to serve. And then we view the world as God does. All of creation stands to be renewed. Did you know that? That as Jesus rises from the dead, that means that this world that he created, that he spoke into being, will also be renewed and resurrected and restored and made pristine again. So what we see is not all that we will get. There's a day when all that we've destroyed and desecrated, all the injustices that we see and experience will be made new and made right. It bursts wonder. And then finally it builds hope. We like to say here at Hope, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not wish casting. It's as real as the tomb is empty. Hope is as real as the tomb is empty. The empty tomb builds hope in three ways. Hope destroys our cynicism. Who's cynical? We don't trust the words of others. We don't even trust our own word. And this bleeds into our view of God's word and his promises too. But the empty tomb tells us that Jesus does exactly what he says he does. This is the mini-sermon that the angels preach in verse 5. Take a look. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he's risen. And then the angel says, remember how he told you this would happen. I mean, if you were to boil down the sermon into a couple words, you would say, Jesus does exactly what he says he does and will do. 
Jesus says six different times in Luke's gospel that he's going to be raised. And the angels here are to remind the women of this and to us as well. And what happens when they do? They remember. Hope rises. Real hope. Jesus always does what he says he will do. And so what promise of Jesus, let me just ask right now, do you need to hear, do you need to remember this morning? Maybe it is the promise of resurrection. He promises, he says, never to drive you away. Jesus promises to give you rest. He promises to be with you forever. He promises you peace. He promises to bind up the brokenhearted. He promises to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. He promises eternal life. It starts today. Hope replaces cynicism and also replaces our despair. Despair is the absence of hope. Despair is when circumstances are so overwhelming we we give up. What does the angel preach? Why do you look among the dead for the living? Jesus is alive. The resurrection cuts despair at the root. Because this question from the angels is not really a question, it's a statement. It's boldly stating that Jesus is not among the dead, he is alive. The word here is zao, it's eternal life. It's not just eternal with respect to time, it's eternal with respect to quality. Jesus is true life, and that means the worst case scenario of your life, whatever that is, as you ponder it right in this very moment, is no longer the worst case scenario, because Jesus is alive. And that cuts despair at the root. The tomb is empty. And hope is as real as that empty tomb. Thirdly, hope replaces, I think, a religious attitude towards life. Real hope is not something we create. Real hope is not something we maintain. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then what he gives us is more than a mindset. As Paul puts it, we're united to a person, not an idea. Jesus, the risen one. When we put our trust in Jesus... We too are declared new creation. Our hope is a living hope because our hope is the risen Jesus who is alive. That's the resurrection default. It stands against the death default. The empty tomb is the new normal. Jesus is alive. He breaks convention. He births wonder. He builds hope. Many of you know that I lost my father, I lost my dad to cancer in 2020. And that was bitter enough. But 2020 also stole the death rituals from me. That, you know, humanity has developed over the millennia. To deal with death. To live within its parameters. Things like funeral services and wakes and hugs and potlucks. Remembrance services. Visits. So I had a double grief. I couldn't even receive hugs. And for a while, this bitter reality made me, well, it made me bitter. But friends, this is not cheap, what I'm about to say. But costly. The resurrection of Jesus that bitterness to it. Amen. Bitterness belongs to the death default. And our passage this morning reminds me that even the most lovely death rituals cannot do anything about the wrongness of death. The women in our passage do something lovely in the face of death. They go with spices. 
And that is lovely, but the bitter truth is that death still remains. They think. But the angels redirect them. Don't they? And while the angels redirect you, to something more lovely. Jesus is not dead. Resurrection is the default in Christ. I don't need to stay bitter, and you don't need to stay bitter. I don't need to stay cynical. You don't need to stay cynical. I can grieve in greater depths because I know the grief will not sink me. In fact, my hope in the empty tomb allows me to feel the pain deeper. Because I know death doesn't win. We can grieve and we should, but we grieve as those with hope. That's the resurrection default. It's hope. Hope is the resurrection default. And let's all ask the Lord that he would do that in our lives now. Lord, we ask that you indeed cultivate this in our lives. We believe. Help our unbelief. Some of us may leave this morning like those we read in the gospel narratives, perplexed, wondered, maybe confused. But Lord, have your way. Have your way. Creating us hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.